Welcome to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, only a few genetic changes were enough to turn an ordinary stomach bug into the bacteria responsible for the plague. Then stick around or skip ahead for a story from our archives. The number of viruses in the oceans outnumber all cellular life forms by a factor of 10. For the first time, a comprehensive survey has identified what they are. First, the mutant genes behind the Black Death by Carrie Arnold. Each year, 4 million people visit Yosemite National Park in California. Most bring back photos, postcards, and an occasional sunburn. But two unlucky visitors this summer got a very different souvenir. They got the plague. This quintessential medieval disease caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis and transmitted most often by flea bites still surfaces in a handful of cases each year in the western United States according to the CDC. Its historical record is far more macabre. The plague of Justinian, from 541 to 543, decimated nearly half the population in the Mediterranean, while the Black Death of the Middle Ages killed one in every three Europeans. Now, researchers are beginning to reveal a surprising genetic history of the plague. A rash of discoveries show how just a small handful of genetic changes— an altered protein here, a mutated gene there, can transform a relatively innocuous stomach bug into a pandemic capable of killing off a large fraction of a continent. The most recent of these studies, published in June 2015, found that the acquisition of a single gene named PLA gave Y. pestis the ability to cause pneumonia, causing a form of plague so lethal that it kills essentially all of those infected who don't receive antibiotics. In addition, it is also among the most infectious bacteria known. Yersinia pestis is a pretty kick-ass pathogen, said Paul Keim, a microbiologist at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. A single bacterium can cause disease in mice. It's hard to get much more virulent than that. The genetic makeover that led to the modern plague is thought to have occurred relatively recently in evolutionary history anywhere from 1,500 to 20,000 years ago. But last month, a discovery was announced that could extend the history of the plague all the way back to a time before humans. George Poinar Jr., a biologist at Oregon State University in Corvallis, found that a 20-million-year-old flea encased in amber has a plague-like bacterium on its proboscis that could be an ancestor of Y. pestis. While a definitive identification of the bacterium hasn't been made, and may not even be possible, an ancient ancestor of the Black Death could help reveal the earliest steps in a tortured evolutionary path, and perhaps help pinpoint at what point the most deadly changes occurred. As long as there has been plague, there have been people trying to figure out where it came from. Plague appears in a boom-and-bust cycle, emerging suddenly to cause huge pandemics and then retreating, sometimes for hundreds of years. The abrupt eruption of death with no apparent cause tended to invite theories involving the supernatural. The reality is nearly as remarkable. 
Recent genetic work has traced the plague's evolutionary precursor back to the relatively harmless gastrointestinal pathogen Y pseudotuberculosis, which only causes mild diarrhea. Some people don't even know they have it, said Wyndham Latham, a biologist at Northwestern University who has spent his career studying the plague bacterium. Yersinia pestis can kill you in three days, and only a few changes were required to make that switch. Moreover, these changes did not occur very long ago. In several recent studies, researchers compared plague bacteria samples from two pandemics. The Y. pestis DNA, recovered from London's plague pits and from German graves dating from the plague of Justinian, turned out to be largely the same. In addition, bacterial samples from modern plague victims around the world reveal very little variation. The findings indicate that Y. pestis hasn't yet had time to accumulate lots of mutations. Yersinia pestis is such a recent species that there's not very much genetic diversity among plague strains, even the ones from historic graveyards, said Joe Hinnebush, a plague researcher at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. The bacteria's murderous adaptations are only a few thousand years old. But what are these adaptations? In 2004, an international team of researchers published the first full genetic sequence of the plague ancestor Y. pseudotuberculosis. When they compared it to Y. pestis, they found that most of the differences between the two were so-called neutral mutations, changes that did not alter the traits of Y. pestis. Only a few minor changes stood out. The first was like giving Y. pestis an all-you-can-fly ticket on the bacterium's favorite ride the flea. Why pseudotuberculosis can't travel on fleas, making it much less infectious than its modern descendant. Hinnebush showed why it can't move this way. Why pseudotuberculosis is deadly to fleas, causing a diarrhea that kills nearly half of them. Why pestis, on the other hand, gives fleas only a mild illness. To find out what in the bacteria was causing disease in the fleas, Hinnebush and Iman Shuika, a postdoc, chopped up Y. pseudotuberculosis into tiny pieces and fed them to the fleas. Only fleas that consumed the bacterium's protective coat became ill, so the poison had to be located there. Further detective work published in 2014 in PNAS revealed that the culprit was a protein called urease. This protein is present in Y. pseudotuberculosis, but a genetic mutation stops the Y. pestis bacterium from creating it. When Shuika and Hinnebush inserted a functional copy of the urease gene back into Y. pestis and fed these genetically engineered plague microbes to fleas, the tiny arthropods got sick, just as they did when they ate pseudotuberculosis. This shows how very minor changes can have a dramatic effect, Hinnebush said. But fleas are only part of the story of the plague's development. While Hinnebush was working on urease, Latham was examining another small genetic change that allowed the plague to defeat one of the body's main defense mechanisms, blood clots. When a flea bites into flesh, the body responds by clotting blood to prevent bleeding and promote healing. If a plague bacterium gets trapped in this clot, it can't multiply and spread itself through its new host. Latham showed that Y. pestis has a gene called PLA that its ancestors lack. 
This gene encodes for a protein that helps to dissolve blood clots. Without a clot, the bacterium is free to spread to the nearest lymph node where it makes billions of copies of itself. Latham's work, which was published in Science, showed that PLA is required for pneumonic plague, a form of plague that can be transmitted from person to person and can kill its host in under 24 hours. But Latham didn't know whether PLA was the only factor necessary. He turned to several ancestral strains of Y. pestis that continue to circulate in rodents in the highlands of China and Central Asia, likely the ancestral home of the bacterium. These strains provided an intermediate version between Y. pseudotuberculosis and modern Y. pestis. More importantly, some of these particular strains lacked PLA. When Latham and Daniel Zimbler, a postdoc, tested the PLA-free ancestral strains, they found that these could not cause pneumonic plague. But when they added PLA while keeping the rest of the DNA the same, the strains readily caused pneumonic plague. And when they removed PLA from modern strains of Y. pestis, the bacteria lost their ability to cause pneumonia. Latham, Zimbler, and colleagues published their results this June in Nature Communications. We found the very earliest state at which Yersinia pestis could cause respiratory disease, and as soon as it had PLA, it could grow rapidly and cause pneumonia, Latham said. Why pestis didn't just acquire PLA, the bacterium also changed it. A chance mutation altered one amino acid in PLA, which greatly increased its virulence by allowing the bacterium to penetrate more deeply into the body. Once there, it could make more copies of itself, making it more likely to be transmitted to another person, whether by coughing or by flea bite. The findings change how researchers think about pneumonic plague. The ability to cause pneumonia was thought to have been a last-minute addition to the deadly repertoire of Y. pestis. Latham's work suggests that Y. pestis acquired PLA and thus the ability to cause pneumonia very early. The mutation in PLA happened later, transforming a bacterium capable of causing localized outbreaks of disease into the mass killer we know today. Our work is pointing to this mutation in PLA as one of these big bang events in plague, Latham said. It was already ready to cause severe pneumonia, and once it could cause invasive disease, everything could amplify. Plague continues to spread. Although improvements in pest control hygiene, and antibiotics have dramatically decreased the size of outbreaks and the number of people who die from them. Yet the DNA of these bacteria carries the chilling reminder that the next major pandemic may be only a few mutations away. Second, Scientists Map 5,000 New Ocean Viruses by Carl Zimmer In March 2011, the Terra, a 36-meter schooner, sailed from Chile to Easter Island, a three-week leg of a five-year global scientific expedition. All but one of the seven scientists aboard the ship spent much of their time on the sun-drenched deck, hauling up wondrous creatures, such as luminous blue jellyfish and insects known as sea skaters, would spend their entire lives skimming the surface of the ocean far from land. At the stern of the Terra, a shipping container was bolted to the deck, with a door and a tiny window cut through the metal walls. 
One of the scientists, Melissa Duhame, spent most of the voyage inside the dark, tiny cell where she fought off an endless bout of seasickness. People would come in to see what I was doing and leave pretty quickly, Duhame said. Inside her cell, Duhame sat next to a hose as wide as an outstretched hand. A pump drew water through the hose from several meters below the boat and then pushed it through a series of filters. Each filter was finer than the last, blocking smaller and smaller life forms. The setup stopped animals first, then zooplankton and algae. The last filter in the hose, with pores just 220 nanometers wide, was fine enough to block bacteria. Scrubbed of all these living things, the water finally flowed into three 30-liter vats. To the untrained eye, these vats might seem to be full of sterile water, but they were seething with ocean life, or lifelike things at the very least. The three vats held up to one trillion viruses. The ocean contains many mysteries, but none so great as its viruses. Scientists estimate that there are a thousand billion 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 virus particles in all the world's seas. They outnumber all cellular life forms by roughly a factor of 10. Scientists have been dimly aware of the staggering scale of the ocean's virosphere since the late 1980s, but many of the simplest questions about it remained open for years. Scientists couldn't even say how many species of viruses there were in the oceans. It's as if zoologists were dimly aware that many places on Earth were home to things called mammals, but their knowledge was based on only a few squirrels in a cage. Duhame and her colleagues joined the Terra Oceans expedition to change that, by collecting ocean viruses on a scale never attempted before. As they report in the May 22, 2015 issue of Science, they gathered enough samples to confidently estimate the total number of distinct populations of viruses in the sunlit upper reaches of the ocean. Out of the 5,476 populations they identified, only 39 were previously known to science. The researchers have gone on to study where these species live and how they affect the ocean's ecosystems. For years, scientists have suspected that viruses alter the very chemistry of the world's oceans, and may even influence the planet's climate. Now, the data from the Terra are going to give researchers a much better handle on the full power of the ocean's viruses. To Duhame, who is now at the University of Michigan, getting a glimpse of the ocean's virosphere made three seasick weeks in a darkened metal hut worth the discomfort. You're in this moment in nature where all these important cycles are going on all around you in the ocean. You're just trying to take a snapshot of that, she said. That never gets old. Scientists first discovered viruses in sickly tobacco plants in the late 1800s. Yet for nearly a century, marine biologists assumed that the oceans were virtually virus-free. When they looked at seawater under microscopes, they simply didn't see any viruses. And so they concluded that the oceans were too harsh for viruses to survive in great numbers. In the 1980s, a biologist named Lita Proctor decided to take a more careful, systematic look. Her surveys of water from places like the Caribbean and the Sargasso Sea revealed a surprising abundance of viruses. Other researchers went on to confirm that the viruses are indeed a viral soup. It became clear that viruses are an important part of the ocean's ecology, 
but scientists struggle to study them. Simply staring at a virus through a microscope doesn't tell you all that much about it. Two viruses that look nearly identical may infect completely different hosts. Since scientists couldn't tell which host the virus is needed in order to replicate, they struggled to rear them in the lab. Then, in the 1990s, a new way to survey life emerged. Scientists would add chemicals to a sample of seawater, or soil, or lake mud, or some other material that would rip apart all the proteins and membranes it contained. Out of that detritus, the scientists could extract all the DNA from the sample in a jumble of fragments. The researchers then sequenced the fragments and pieced them together into larger DNA segments. Finally, they could compare these genetic sequences to those of known species, finding either an exact match or a sequence from a closely related species. This method, known as metagenomics, quickly gave scientists a wave of new discoveries about bacteria and other microbes. It transformed the study of human health by allowing scientists to catalog the thousands of species of microbes that live in and on the human body, which had previously been unknown because they couldn't be grown outside of our inner jungles. But ocean viruses don't surrender their secrets so easily to metagenomics. All cellular species, from E. coli to fin whales, have a core set of genes in common. Viruses, on the other hand, have no such universal set of genes. When scientists gather genes from a virus that's new to science, they often find that almost none of its genes bear any resemblance to any previously discovered viral gene. In addition, viruses often pick up new genes, either from other species of viruses or from their hosts. When scientists isolate one piece of genetic material from an unknown virus, it can be difficult to determine where it came from. In recent years, scientists have managed to bring some order to this chaos. Matthew Sullivan, an environmental virologist at the University of Arizona, and his colleagues have developed a method to identify new species of viruses. They start with viruses that share some of the same genes, then they measure how similar their DNA is. When they plot those measurements on a graph, the viruses do not spread out in a hazy, inscrutable cloud. Instead, they huddle in tight clumps. These clumps, Sullivan and his colleagues argue, represent distinct species of viruses. Sullivan joined the leadership of the Terra Oceans Project to put these new methods to work on a global scale. His team of researchers filtered seawater in every ocean on Earth, along with the Red Sea, the Mediterranean, and the Adriatic, visiting 43 sites in all. They processed the water with iron chloride to make the viruses stick together in particles, filtered the water again, and shipped the virus-clogged filters to labs around the world. Sullivan and his colleagues examined the viruses under microscopes and sequenced their genes. All told, they extracted 2.16 billion pieces of DNA, each piece containing 101 base pairs on average. The scientists found that many of the pieces overlapped with each other, in jigsaw puzzle fashion, they assembled long stretches of DNA and began to recognize the full sequence of virus genes. As they compiled this genetic catalog, they began to sort it. Sullivan and his colleagues combined closely related genes into clusters. A pair of genes that encode for similar proteins would be placed into the same cluster. All told, they identified over 1.3 million clusters. Now they were left with a crucial question. 
What fraction of all the virus genes in the world's oceans had they collected? Had they just skimmed the surface? Or did these 1.3 million clusters represent most of the viral genes in existence? There's a clever statistical trick scientists can use to answer a question like this. Sullivan and his colleagues began by randomly picking a gene from their catalog. Then they picked another one and noted whether the two genes belonged to the same cluster, or to two different ones. Then, they picked out a third gene and compared it to the first two. At each step, they marked their progress by plotting a point on a graph, where every novel gene made the graph tick up. At first, the curve was steep, because each new gene typically didn't belong to any cluster identified so far. But after a while, the curve flattened as the new genes fell into existing clusters. By the end of the process, it was rare for the scientists to pick a gene that was new. Repeating this exercise over and over again with randomly selected genes produced the same flattened curve. This flattened curve told Sullivan and his colleagues something profound. That they have probably found almost all the virus genes in the upper oceans of the entire planet. There are not billions of additional genes lurking out there, waiting to be sucked into a hose. That's nice, Sullivan said, because it's a finite number we can work with. The scientists then used this catalog to figure out how many different kinds of viruses there are in the world's oceans. For now, Sullivan is careful to call these distinct kinds of viruses populations, but he's confident that with further research, he'll be able to show that these populations are, in fact, true species. By comparing the genes in the clusters to one another, the scientists were able to identify 5,476 distinct populations. With this single expedition, the scientists have dramatically increased our view of the ocean virosphere. When Sullivan and his colleagues tried to match their population to species that scientists have already documented, they succeeded just 39 times. In other words, 99% of the viruses they discovered were new to science. The flattened curve of genes tells Sullivan and his colleagues that if they went out on a new expedition, using the same methods to identify viruses, they wouldn't find many more new ones. But Sullivan is quick to point out that the total number of species of ocean viruses will turn out to be more than 5,000. In recent years, for example, scientists have found a number of so-called giant viruses that are as big as bacteria. The filters that Duhame and others used on the Terra Ocean survey prevented any giant viruses from getting into the vats they studied. In addition, the scientists sequenced only viruses that used DNA to encode their genes. Some viruses, such as influenza and HIV, use RNA, a single-strand version of DNA, to encode their genes. By one estimate, as many as half of the viruses in the ocean are RNA viruses. What's more, the Terra Ocean Survey only took samples from the surface of the ocean. The deeper regions have viruses too, as does the sediment at the bottom of the sea. Nevertheless, the Terra Ocean Survey leaves Sullivan confident that the total number of ocean viruses will only be in the tens of thousands. It's a smaller number than I expected, Sullivan said. Based on smaller studies, some scientists have speculated that there might be hundreds of thousands of species of ocean viruses and billions of viral genes. But the Terra Ocean Survey suggests that's not the case. It is what it is, Sullivan said.
With such a comprehensive picture of ocean viruses, Sullivan and his colleagues can start drawing some broad conclusions about them. Each virus population is more common in some areas than in others, for example. That's likely due to the fact that their hosts thrive at certain temperatures, or with certain levels of oxygen. But Sullivan and his colleagues found viruses from most populations everywhere they looked. In other words, every part of the ocean is like a seed bank for viruses. As soon as the right host comes along, a relatively rare virus will infect it and replicate itself into a huge population. Now that scientists have such a clear picture of the diversity of ocean viruses, they can hope to gain a better understanding of how these viruses are affecting the planet. Viruses kill vast numbers of hosts. Some researchers have estimated that they kill up to 40% of all bacteria in the ocean every day. Paradoxically, though, this daily massacre could actually increase the biomass of the oceans. Mathematical models of ocean ecosystems suggest that, by killing so many microbes, viruses could release carbon and other organic nutrients back into the environment, providing an easy source of nutrients for other organisms. Carbon that isn't consumed may drift down into the deep ocean, thereby causing vast supplies of carbon to fall to the seafloor, rather than escape into the atmosphere. Until now, scientists haven't known enough about ocean viruses to create precise models of these effects. So they haven't been able to say with confidence what the viruses are doing to our world. Deheim said that the data coming from the Terra Ocean Survey will go a long way toward pinning those models down. We're very far from doing that, she said, but the path is there. Despite all this new data, Sullivan still considers the ecology of ocean viruses to be in its infancy. The virus stuff isn't as mature as counting zebras, he said. That's because it's easier to observe zebras and define a zebra species than it is for viruses. But Sullivan and his colleagues have built a pipeline they can now use to pump huge numbers of additional viruses. Animal ecologists have a head start that stretches hundreds of years. But according to Sullivan, we may quickly be ahead. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast, with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Leah Alfonso. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.